You are tuned to KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM, K282BH Philomath on 104.3 FM, K220HR Hood River on 91.9 FM, and streaming on the web at kboo.fm. Hi, this is Melissa Lesniak, the creator and host of That Vegan Show. On That Vegan Show, you will hear in-depth guest interviews on vegan-related topics, such as companion animals, environmentalism, social issues, and food and nutrition. We also learn about specific animals, such as possums and rabbits, including their needs and ways to help them. Be sure to tune in to That Vegan Show on the fourth Friday of the month at 11 a.m., right here on KBOO Portland. Here we go. Hello and welcome to Pathways, where you are invited to join me for a visit with leaders in personal development and cultural evolution. This is your host, Paul O'Brien. There is an extraordinary range and diversity of sexual thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. Examining sexual customs, practices, and identities from a wide variety of perspectives Today's guest on Pathways shares the results of his fascinating interviews with 20 experts, including sex therapists, relationship therapists, and tantric sex teachers. Our guest today is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller, author of the book, Freeing Sexuality, Sex Workers, Psychologists, Consent Teachers, and Polyamory Experts Speak Out. Richard has been a clinical psychologist for more than 50 years. He's the host of the podcast Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, the founder of the nationally acclaimed Coke Enders Alcohol and Drug Program and the Health Sanctuary at Wilbur Hot Springs. He is a former faculty member at the University of Michigan and Stanford University and an advisor on the President's Commission on Mental Health, the author of Psychedelic Medicine and Psychedelic Wisdom, which we interviewed him about a year ago. He lives in Northern California. Hello, Richard, and welcome back to the Pathways Show. Thank you. Great to be with you, Paul. And I'm sort of being with you in Hawaii just by looking at your background. <laughs> well, it's nice to have you sort of here via Zoom. Now, you know, these days, along with all the ghastly events in our world, you point out in your book, which was fascinating, that we received a magnificent gift, which is getting immense pleasure from sexual activity. I thought, oh my God, this is so sex positive, it feels foreign, you know? And then you go on to write, if there is heaven on earth, it resides in ecstatic pleasure anchored in authentic intimacy with another person. It can, and it can even be achieved through healthy, shame-free solo release. So this is, this is gonna give us a lot of fruit for conversation here. I love your orientation. Now, you wrote your intention in creating the book was to make a contribution to freeing sexuality from its historical place as a weaponized force. How has sexuality been weaponized? Sexuality has been weaponized going back in all of recorded time against women. Sexuality has been used to keep them down, to keep them owned, to keep them as chattel. 
women have been suppressed in their sexuality throughout all of time. One of the people in my book points out that we have the same gap in orgasms as we do in finance. Namely, women make so much less than men when they have the same exact skills. Women are having one third of the orgasms that men have in this country. In other words, almost 100% of the males in this country can orgasm. There are some that can't, it's rare circumstances. But with women, it's somewhere between 30 and 40%. And what men have done as a way of weaponizing is they have blamed women by calling them frigid, by calling them hyposexual, by making diagnoses on these women, rather than acknowledging that really what's going on is that the culture has suppressed women's enjoyment of sexuality so that if women acknowledge how much they enjoy it, they get put down. And particularly if they enjoy it when they're single with more than one man, man they're called slut or whore or some kind of name. But if a young boy who's 18 or 23 or 26 and he's uh, single and he's out there having sex with a lot of women, nobody puts that boy down. In fact, they put him up. They call him stud or, you know, sexy or, you know, manly and all these nice words we have for men. So that's a couple of examples of how it's done. The other way it's weaponized, Paul, is because of our distorted views that we've developed over these thousands of years, particularly as a result of misguided religion, our distorted views of sexuality are such that women get bought for sex a great deal more than men get bought for sex. Yes, there are examples of men being bought for sex and they're called gigolos, but it's much fewer. And women are not only bought for sex, but as we well know, they are trafficked around the world. Women are taken from some countries and sent to another country, and the person who receives them gets all their passports. So basically, he has them as slaves when they show up because they can't go anywhere. He's got their passports, and they're in a country they've never been in before, and they don't even speak the language. So they're totally dependent on this person. Okay. Well, that's another way. You know, I I think, I don't know if it's worth pointing out. Um, of course, sex trafficking is horrific, and there's no, there's no justification for the abuse of the dominant patriarchal paradigm. But I would submit that women have a lot more at stake when it comes to sex, particularly historically. I mean, they can get pregnant. They're more likely to get an STI. Uh, than a man, and they have a way less testosterone. So I think they might be naturally inclined towards being less orgasmic. Do you think there's anything to that? Not whatsoever. <laughs> we are made not in the slightest. We are made equal. The only thing that's not the same is the size of the external genitalia. Our penis comes outside of our body, and each and it has nerve endings on it. So if you touch us anywhere on the penis, it's fun and exciting, although there are parts of it that are even have more nerve endings, which is the tip of it, 
and that is even more exciting. Whereas in the female case, the ex excitatory organ, the clitoris, has only a small part of it that's outside of the body. But what men have been doing for years, for years and years, even the medical doctors and the, and the people who study anatomy have been relating to the clitoris as if it's just this little tiny thing that sticks out of the body. But as it turns out that an Australian, um, um, uh, an, an, an Australian medical doctor, Helen McConnell, proved to the world some years ago, the clitoris isn't just this little thing that sticks out. The clitoris is actually a long wishboned uh, shaped organ that goes deep into the vagina and is, goes along the sides of the, the vaginal walls. And so if you actually measure the, from the base of the clitoris to the tip of the clitoris, it's longer than the average male's penis. But that's not what the cultural belief system is, and that's not what has been spread. What's been spread is, well, yeah, because they have this little tiny thing, and if you don't touch it, that's why they don't come. Oh, no, I, was, I wasn't disputing any of that. I was just submitting the, the idea that women have more at stake. They have more of a risk factor when it comes. Well, they may have more of a risk factor in terms of getting pregnant, but there's no relationship between the risk of getting pregnant and having an orgasm. And there's no relationship well, between if it makes the risk. you nervous if it makes you nervous there's a correlation perhaps well that's true but nowadays since we have birth control pills we've really ripped that one apart so right. that's not that's not the case anymore for decades right, it's right. really it's really cultural suppression women are not seen as allowed to have a lot of sexual fun yeah, I mean, well, you, you know, know. I, I, you know, I, I understand. And you make the point in the book that shame and sex are so intertwined that it's almost impossible to separate them. And I think this applies to men too, particularly people who grew up in a Christian fundamentalistic type of environment like me, where I was taught at a very young age that the worst thing I could do is masturbate. Um, so you know, it, it, it didn't, it wasn't that, it wasn't that great for me either. Um, the shame. When I was a little, when I was a little boy, uh, we were told that if you masturbated, it made hair grow on the palm of your hands. Right. And after a while, all of us noticed that there was no hair on our hands, so we knew we were being lied to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, that's good. You know, that's that that's lucky for you that you didn't believe in a god that was watching you all the time and judging you. Well, I don't want to go that far because there was plenty of guilt, just like you're pointing out. Right. right? In fact. I think the force of religion is so strong and the belief system that there should be no sex before marriage, which is the belief system of, of the Jews and the Christians and of the Islamists, the major religions, right. it is so strong that I believe that even those of us who have freed ourselves up from religion still have a little lurking in the background when we have sex before marriage maybe we're doing something wrong right. maybe suppose they're right and we're going to go to hell for this right right yeah no yeah that's that's incredible so how did you decide who to interview in the book i mean you interviewed 20 people all of them women and um and it was a fascinating collection how did you decide well like so many things in life you do it through relationships and connections. So the three 
what I call sexperts, meaning PhDs in human sexuality, um, Lonnie Barback, um, uh, Stella Resnick, and uh, Janet Hardy. Um, these are people I know. In fact, I was married to one of them, uh, Stella Resnick. And Lonnie Barback is a very close friend of mine, and she was married to my dear friend who departed, David Geisinger. And, and uh, Janet Hardy, of course, is a known uh, person yes, in right. our field because of her work, uh, The Ethical Slut. So that's how that happened. Now, years ago, many years ago, a woman named Margot St. James worked for me, very briefly. Right. Margot St. James was a madam at one time. She also ran for uh, city council in San Francisco and the Board of Supervisors. But Margot started an international union called COYOTE, which stands for Call Off Your Old Tired Ethics. It's the prostitutes union. So I was connected early on to prostitution and how they're put down and how, how terribly prostitutes are treated because Margot really taught me you know, when I was very young, I was in my late 20s when she worked for me at my clinic in San Francisco. And she really taught me just how poorly these sex workers are treated. So I had that in me. So when I was writing the book, I contacted the pres president of Coyote, Norma Jean Almodover. And Norma Jean is in the book. And then of course, she introduced me to some prostitutes. So we introduced some former prostitutes in the book, who then, some of whom went on to get PhDs and become advocates for working women. And then of course there's Annie Sprinkle. Annie Sprinkle is, is a giant in the field of human sexuality. Annie Sprinkle is a former prostitute, a former uh, sex worker of all kinds, a former porn star, who went on to get a PhD in human sexuality and became a teacher and an activist and a movie maker and an author, all of those things. She's a remarkable person. And so of course I wanted to have Annie in the book. In fact, I'm gonna put in a little plug for her latest gig. Annie Sprinkle and her partner Beth are working on what they call echo-sexuality. Echo-sexuality is transcendent. You will love this because you're into divinity. Transcendent sexuality is when you go out and you actually feel like you're making love to the air or to the water or to the earth or to trees. And this is way beyond me. I mean, I would I haven't been able to achieve that kind of status, but these but but they're very sincere about it and basically it's a way of making love to life. And I think it's a very evolved uh, way of being, and they're very unusual people. It's beautiful. You use the word sex worker uh, in your book. Uh, often uh, it's used by you and some of the people interviewed instead of the word prostitutes. What is the difference between a sex worker and a prostitute? Prostitution has too much baggage. Prostitution is illegal. We have made it illegal for women to sell their bodies. That's another use of weaponizing sexuality that you asked about earlier. Yeah. Men, I can sell my body. 
If I want to go out and take a job as a laborer, I can sell my body. If I want to sell my brain, as I do as a clinical psychologist, I can sell that. I can sell every aspect of myself. I might even be able to sell a body part if I wanted to. But if a woman wants to sell sexual favors and do that as a living, that's a sex worker. But they're not allowed to, and they're degraded, and their children are bullied in school and made fun of. Terrible things happen to them. Or, or and I, would, I, I would like to see people who want to engage in selling sex lifted to a profession yeah. where they're seen as people just trying to make a living with you know, what they got. Dan Savage said a really interesting thing. He said, um, America is the only developed country on earth where prostitution is illegal unless you film it. That's really beautifully said. <laughs> I unless thought you that film was amazing. It. That is just yeah. So that's amazing. a that's a very smart line, isn't it? Yeah. Now but, you know there, there's America again, and I, I you know there's so many there's things I'm just ashamed of because I believe in America. I'm a I'm a student of the American Revolution, and and I love the founding fathers. And I'm so ashamed of us doing some of these things, like continuing to make uh, a pro women who are sex workers put them in jail and illegal. Um, it, it's 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 just unacceptable. They're just people trying to make a living. That's all they're doing. You know, you say the majority of us in America uh, suffer from hypocrisy-induced neurosis and what you call post-traumatic sexual stress disorder. Can you uh, define those? Oh, thank you so much of asking about that. Hypocrisy-induced neurosis. You get these preachers and these congresspeople, hellfire and brimstone against gays, screaming their heads off, it's against the Bible, and getting all these tens of millions of people to follow them. The very same preacher is caught in the worst part of town taking methamphetamine and hiring sex workers. That is hypocrisy. And when leaders do that, Donald Trump, for example, his wife, Melania, gorgeous woman, is in the hospital giving birth, and he's somewhere in Los Angeles fucking Stormy Daniels. That is hypocrisy. 17 women, when he was running for, for office, came out and claimed that he accosted them sexually. And this is a leader. So when leaders are hypocrites, it makes the followers' mind shake. What does it mean? They're telling me not to do this, and this is what they're doing. They're screaming against these people, and they're acting like those people. That makes people neurotic. And that's what I call mass hypocrisy-induced neurosis. Right. Now, you asked about the other one post-traumatic sexual stress disorder. Well, we touched on it a few minutes ago, Paul. When you're taught all your life that if you have sex before marriage, you're committing a sin, and then 95% of the public nowadays, we have the data, are having sex before marriage, they're traumatized in some way. They know they're sinning, and, and that's not, and, and what a terrible thing to have 95% of the public somewhere lurking in the back of their mind the belief that they're doing something against their own religion. Right. Talk about that. And that, that creates, that's traumatizing to people. Is it any wonder that 
72% of our country now, Paul, are obese or overweight. I think the obesity epidemic is partly a result of this hypocrisy-induced neurosis and the post-traumatic sexual stress disorder because people are eating to cover up their guilt and their bad feelings and their discomfort. It's not the only reason they're eating, but it's a very big contributing factor. That's a beautiful point. That's a strong point. Let's talk about monogamy. You have uh, some of these uh, 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 people that you interviewed in the book uh, have a lot to say about that. You know, one of them said, myth number one is that long-term monogamous relationships are the only real relationships. And that's, in our culture, that's the default assumption, and you're bad if you don't do it. Um, what is your opinion on that? Again, another totally misguided concept set up by religion. Human beings are not coupling animals. If you look, go back way in our history. Human beings are tribal. It's too dangerous to be a coupling animal. When we came out of the caves and started going out into the world, two people couldn't make it. There'd be no way in the world two people couldn't make it. They couldn't. So what did they do? They banded together in little tribes. And then the men went hunting together and the women took care of the food and the fire together because they weren't as physically strong, but they were smart. And so little tribes formed. And I believe that human beings, we've got plenty of evidence, are tribal animals. And we have been misguided into believing that we should live two people in a little thing called an apartment or a little thing called a house and then have our children and be able to sustain ourselves. It's not sustainable. It's not sustainable emotionally, and it's not sustainable economically. And so part of what's driving people to get back together in little tribes is the financial aspect, because it's just too darn hard for couples, a young couple oh. in their 20s. So what's happening, Paul? People are waiting longer and longer to get married. Why? That's economics, they can't afford it. People are staying in their home longer. People are graduating from college and moving back in with their parents. That's economics. And right. when they're getting to, and so there's a movement on now to living tribally in little groups, and some of them are having sex with more than one person, which right. is called polyamory. Yeah. Some of them are living in groups where they're intimate with more than one person, but it's not sexual. That's called polyaffective, meaning they're having poly-emotional relationships with other people, but only having sexual relationships with one other person, but they're still living in what's called a polycule or a little tribe. And 5% of the United States right now, Paul, are polyamorous, but 30% of the United States are thinking about it because they're realizing, as you well know and all your listeners know, more than 50% of the population that get married get divorced. Well, ask your listeners, how many things in life would you bet on if you had a 50-50 chance of losing? How many operations would you let a doctor do on you if 50% of the time you'd end up dead? I don't think so. 
How many times would you? I don't know how many times I would drive into town if 50% of the time I was going to have an accident. Well, 50% of the marriages fail. At a certain point, the public's going to wake up and say, you know, maybe there's another way. You know, and that's what and that's what these people are looking at. They're not claiming to to know the truth from on high from God. You know, I think what they're saying, Paul, is we got to try something different because this damn thing ain't working. Right. I heard the argument. Uh, I think it was made by the fellow who wrote Sex at Dawn, uh, which is a brilliant book. And, and um, he said, if if monogamy was natural, why would we have to have such serious penalties for violating it you know it's sort of like why would we have to work so hard to maintain it and he points out that it's kind of an artifact of uh the invention of private property which happened after we moved out of the nomadic tribal culture into a, a village and we're agriculture we got to store up possessions the invention of private property you know this is my stuff this is your stuff we got to protect my stuff i got to have some weapons oh and women need to be protected and children need to be protected so women became property and it was all governed by the one percent who are like you know making the rules and they're you know it's it's just fascinating how we got into this situation where people are so stuck. You know, I know a lot of people that can't afford to get divorced. You know, they've been married for 35 years and it's kind of outlived its, it's, it's, it's not really that a, a vital a relationship anymore, but they can't afford to leave for economic reasons like you're pointing out. Well, now you're talking about something that's near and dear to me, Paul, and that's economics. Because I believe that the root of all evil on the planet the one biggest contributing variable to the problems of the world has to do with capitalism. Yeah. Because intrinsic in capitalism built into the capitalistic method is that a very few are going to end up with everything and everybody else is going to end up with hardly anything splitting it up. Yeah. And that is not in the long run a sustainable method of having a financial system. And people say, well, but we've been doing it for so long. You know, so long is only so long in terms of each of our little lives history, which is somewhere like 60 to 100 years. But in Earth years, 2,000 years of development is nothing. Right. Absolutely nothing. It's just like a little tiny speck, a molecule blip. in a microscope, right? It's right. a blip, right? And this method is going to have to go. I was hoping I would see alternatives in my lifetime to capitalism, but we really haven't seen any because the things like uh, communism that they claim in Russia and China are not really communism. They're really some form of gangsterism. Uh, they're, they're just uh, flying ideological flags as a way of running a cartel. The, right. closest we the closest we have are the Scandinavian countries. Right. And we ought to and the world should be looking to the Scandinavian countries. Right. Because they they have the happiest people on the planet. They have the least fearful people. Do you know that Paul? They have the least fearful people. And they also on the have planet. the greatest they also have the greatest equality of of political power and representation with women in office and things like that. And my god, there's so many things, there's so many directions we could take this conversation, but we've run out of time. <laughs> We've oh, my word. Wow. <laughs> I know. And I want to do this again, Richard. It's been so great having you on the show. I, I really well, appreciate thanks. it. 
And uh, I want to make sure to tell our listeners about your website, which is mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. That's all one word, mindbodyhealthpolitics.org. Thanks, now, Paul. Yeah, you're so welcome. And, Thank you. And I, and I hope your listeners will take a look at my book, Freeing Sexuality. I think it's worth a look. Definitely, definitely. I want to support that idea. And I want to say to our listeners that those who've tuned in to Pathways Late, this is your host, Paul O'Brien, author of Intuitive Intelligence, a book that shares the theme of the show, which is personal and cultural evolution. Now, don't worry, you can play and or share this interview whenever you want via the internet or as a free podcast, and I'll tell you how in a minute. Today, we've been visiting with Dr. Richard Lewis Miller, author of freeing sexuality sex workers psychologists consent teachers and polyamorous polyamory experts speak out and we've barely scratched the surface of this book folks i really uh encourage you to check it out because it's quite uh an, an educational read and, and really enjoyable and i want to say thank you to all of you listeners for tuning into pathways which is broadcast and streamed on the internet at www.kboo.fm every Sunday morning at 8.30 USA Pacific Time. And even better, podcasts of today's show, which you can listen to and forward to others, are available for free at divination.com. And that's spelled D-I-V-I nation.com, as well as via iTunes, Paulo's YouTube channel, and other free podcast servers. So this is Paul O'Brien reminding you to tell your friends about Pathways Radio and Podcasts. And thanks again to Dr. Richard Lewis Miller and to all of you listeners for tuning in and being a part of the Pathways KBOO Portland on 90.7 FM and streaming on the web at kboo.fm. KBOO Community Radio holds open meetings concerning the operations and programming of KBOO in accordance with requirements of the Communications Act of 1934 and certification requirements of the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Information about KBOO Community Radio's open meeting policy is available at our website at kboo.fm. The Engineering Committee meets on the first Thursday of the month at 7 p.m. This month's meeting will be held online through a public video conference. A public link and phone number to attend the meeting can be found on our website at kboo.fm. Please visit our website to verify if a meeting is being held. Hello, my name is TK Kapurai and I'm an immigrant.